The UK used to have a stable, dependable government, but the resignation of Prime Minister Liz Truss today shows just how shambolic British politics has become. Truss's departure and the turmoil that remains coming up. Today is Thursday, October 20th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in January, President Biden visited Pittsburgh hours before a bridge collapsed there. He's returned to that bridge for the midterms to tout his economic blueprint. Election season is here and so is the usual barrage of political ads. Every campaign and every candidate will say they don't want to do negative ads, but when they feel as though it will help sway undecided voters, they will certainly do it. We look at what the campaigns are saying to voters and how they're saying it. And we'll break down Massachusetts ballot question three. It would change the rules on how many liquor licenses a business can hold. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The search is on for Britain's third prime minister this year. Only 45 days after replacing Boris Johnson, Liz Truss is resigning. Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. Just yesterday, Truss defiantly rejected boos and jeers from members of the opposition in Parliament who called for her resignation when she declared she was a fighter, not a quitter. But the financial turmoil that arose from her tax cut policies generated a wave of discontent from even her own party that Truss was unable to overcome. In London, Villa Marx reports the Conservative Party is now moving forward with a process by which legislators will select a new leader and ultimately prime minister. The UK's shortest-serving premier, Liz Truss, said she'll stay on until her party picks a successor. But after a months-long campaign over the summer left her in Downing Street, her Conservatives once more changed their selection rules. The party chairman said potential candidates will have to enjoy support from 100 legislators to qualify for the parliamentary voting rounds, meaning three contenders at most. Nominations will close Monday and a new leader announced by next Friday, with the possibility grassroots party members may vote online to decide any runoff. No major figures have confirmed they'll run, but already leaders from opposition political parties are demanding a general election instead of what some call a conservative coronation. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks. Even before Italy's new hard-right government has been formed, it's been shaken by one of its partners, former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. In remarks leaked to the press, the 86-year-old media mogul gushed over Russian President Vladimir Putin and blamed Ukraine for starting the war there. Here's NPR's Silvia Pajoli. The new government is to be headed by Giorgia Meloni, Italy's first female prime minister. She's staunchly pro-Ukraine but faces international skepticism since her party's roots are in the ashes of fascism. In his remarks leaked to the press, Berlusconi waxed poetic about the Russian leader. For my birthday, said Berlusconi, Putin sent me 20 bottles of vodka and a very kind letter. Adding, the Russian president singled me out as the first of his five true friends. Meloni issued a statement stressing Italy's staunch role in the Atlantic Alliance. Whoever disagrees, she added, cannot be a part of this government. Silvio Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. The White House says it can confirm that Iran has sent dozens of drones to Russia to use in Moscow's war in Ukraine and that Iranian trainers and technical support personnel had been on the ground in Crimea, the area Russia illegally annexed in 2014, to help Russian military personnel. Iran denies involvement. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was down 90 points before the close. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the first time since the start of August, none of Massachusetts is considered to be an extreme drought. The U.S. Drought Monitor does report that 88% of the state is considered abnormally dry. It's the first time that's been less than 100% since July. MIT has named a new president following an eight-month-long search. Sally Kornbluth will become MIT's 18th president and only the second woman to hold the post. WBR's Vanessa Ochevillo has more on today's announcement. Kornbluth is a cell biologist and the Duke University provost. She spent the last eight years as the chief academic officer at Duke, where she spoke with hundreds of students to inform improvements to campus life. And she plans to take a similar approach at MIT. I want to spend time really getting to know the people and the institution. I want to hear the full range of views and perspectives. And I want to help the people of MIT make MIT even better. Kornbluth takes the reins from current President Raphael Reif, who announced in February he would step down after 10 years in the role. Kornbluth starts in January. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. A state investigation is blaming the theft of $3.5 million from the city of Quincy's pension fund on the city's retirement board, IT department, and investment manager. Scammers hacked the email account of the retirement board's former executive director last year and instructed one of the board's investment managers to make a wire transfer. The state's Public Employee Retirement Administration Commission concludes basic steps could have been taken to prevent that fraud. The Quincy Retirement Board handles pensions for 3,000 city employees. In the forecast, sunshine to take us into the evening hours on a clear night tonight, about 43 for a low. Tomorrow should be in the low 60s. Sunshine returns tomorrow and should be a nice day coming up for Saturday. Clouds ahead for Sunday. 58 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. The race to replace British Prime Minister Liz Truss has begun. Truss served just 45 days in office before announcing her resignation this morning. That's after lawmakers and her conservative party lost confidence in her. For more on another head-turning day in British politics, we have NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Hi, Frank. Hi, Sasha. Frank, this happened extremely quickly, but it also felt inevitable in recent it days. Did. Why couldn't Liz Truss last? Yeah, well, I think the problem was this. You know, as we've talked before about this, she tried to kickstart the economy here with tax cuts for corporation and the rich, but without actually reducing public spending. And this is a time where inflation is about 10% here, rising energy costs. And this spooked the financial markets. It crashed the pound. And she never could really recover. And last night in Parliament, they had a, a, a vote that just became chaotic. It became really clear lawmakers here, they're scared for their jobs in the next election. And they told her, you know, you got to go. And because she has gone, there's now a coming leadership race. What does that look like and how long will it take? Well, the Dories want to do this as fast as possible, Sasha. And the way it's going to work is you got to get the backing of at least 100 Tory lawmakers by Monday afternoon to make the ballot. Now, mathematically, that means only three can make the cut. 
If it's just two people, that's going to go to the national membership of the party for an online vote uh, by October 28th. And if it's just one person who, who reaches that threshold, they become prime minister. Any big names in British politics running yet? We're waiting to see. You know, the bookmakers here, they like Rishi Sunak. He's the former chancellor of the Exchequer. He lost trust the last time around. And what's really fascinating about him is he was against this sort of economic policy, these tax cuts. And when the markets rebelled against Truss's plan, she actually had to adopt his plan. Now, there are also some allies of Boris Johnson, the former prime minister. They're talking about bringing him back. But, but Sasha, I think that would create enormous opposition. And Liz Truss is the fourth prime minister to resign since the 2016 Brexit vote. It's as if 10 Downing Street has become a revolving door. Is Brexit to blame for this? Uh, in the in the beginning, yes, but it's more complicated. You know, what's interesting about the United Kingdom is it used to be known very much for stable, dependable government governance. Brexit did really change that. Um, and it highlighted a couple of things. The country was incredibly polarized, and the Tory party itself was so polarized it became almost ungovernable. You might remember Theresa May, the former prime minister, she tried to push Brexit through parliament, but her own right-wing populace in her own party. They fought her on that. She ended up losing her job. Johnson's downfall was different. You know, basically, if you remember last summer, he was forced out for lying about government parties during COVID lockdown. So much turmoil. Beyond politics, is there anything deeper driving this? Yeah, I think there are a few things. Um, There's a tendency of some Tory leaders, particularly Johnson and Truss, to, as analysts here see it, just promise things they can't deliver. I was talking to a guy named Tim Bale. He teaches politics at Queen Mary University of London, and this is what he said. Each of them is essentially telling their party in the country that it can, to use Boris Johnson's phrase, have its cake and eat it too, only to discover, surprise, surprise, when they enter number 10, that it can't. Frank, what does all this turnover say about the state of Britain's political system? Well, I mean, one problem is the party leadership system, how they choose their leaders. What happens here is the Tory membership makes the ultimate decision. Now, they tend to be whiter, older, maybe wealthier, and certainly more conservative than the rest of the British population. They're the same kind of people who look at Johnson, they like his charisma, humor, and cheerleading patriotism, but they also were willing to overlook his personal flaws. And in the case of Truss, you know, they were very happy with the idea of tax cuts. Um, Patrick Dunleavy, he's an emeritus professor of politics at the London School of Economics. This is how he sees it. The final decisive voice in who gets to be leader are the uh, party members, and they are not very well-informed or critical as an electorate, so that they've chosen badly, really, with Boris Johnson and with Liz Truss. Frank, this is obviously very serious business, but the Brits are known for an absurd sense of political humor. So what have they been doing to try to lighten up the mood? Well, uh, you're right. This has been exhausting for people, but there's one tabloid here that's been running a streaming video of a picture of truss and a head of lettuce asking which would wilt first. And of course, as we now know, the lettuce won. (laughs) The lettuce won. That's NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Frank, thank you. Great to talk, Sasha. The financial fate of some 40 million federal student loan borrowers may now be in the hands of the courts. While borrowers have spent the week applying for President Biden's debt cancellation plan, conservative legal groups have been arguing in multiple lawsuits that this relief should be stopped before it starts. For more on these legal fights, we're joined now by NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Hey, Corey. 
Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what would it take exactly for any of these lawsuits to slow down or actually block debt relief here? The most immediate path right now is through what's called a preliminary injunction. So all of these plaintiffs have asked the courts to essentially shut down debt relief immediately, even before a case can get underway. To do that, though, Elsa, they they have to convince a judge of a few things, including, number one, that they are about to suffer irreparable harm from debt cancellation, and two, that stopping debt relief is somehow in the public interest. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's a pretty high bar, but it is also worth remembering that these conservative legal groups have been really thoughtful about filing their lawsuits in places where they are more likely to get a sympathetic, potentially conservative judge. Think Arizona, uh, Texas, and in what experts tell me, maybe the strongest case in Missouri, we're expecting the judge to rule really any day now on whether to grant a preliminary injunction. Well, like more broadly, what are these lawsuits arguing, essentially? Why do they want to stop this debt cancellation? Well, so bird's eye view, they're trying to convince the courts that President Biden's debt relief plan is illegal because Congress, not the president, they say, has the power of the purse. And we know this relief plan has been estimated to cost around some $400 billion. For its part, the Biden administration argues, look, Congress passed a law that specifically gives the Ed Secretary the power to erase student debt in a time of national emergency. All of these lawsuits have just been filed in the past few weeks, right? Like, have any of them made any real progress yet? Well, they are all still uh, in the early stages where Mm -hmm. plaintiffs first basically have to prove they have the right to bring a suit at all. Uh, Going back to what may be the strongest case, the plaintiffs there are actually six conservative states, including Missouri and Arkansas, and they're home to these state-based companies or agencies that they say will absolutely be harmed by debt cancellation. And the argument goes like this, these agencies manage some very old federal student loans. And so these state attorneys general are arguing that canceling these loans would mean less profit for these lenders and so on. So even that though is gonna be tough to prove because on the same day they filed their lawsuit, the Ed Department actually changed the rules of the program to say these old loans don't qualify for cancellation after all. While that reversal infuriated hundreds of thousands of borrowers who still have these old loans, it also appears to have made it harder for the plaintiffs to prove they're going to be harmed. Huh. Well, I am curious if the Department of Education is allowed to start canceling debts, do the courts have the power to undo that cancellation in the future? Well, so let's say, Elsa, that a judge refuses to grant an injunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, cancellation proceeds, which we know can start uh, as of this coming Sunday. But one of these cases is allowed to move forward. So then we're likely to see, according to the experts I've talked to, a kind of rapid fire game of legal ping pong, right. maybe leading to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I have asked a bunch of experts, is it possible the court could make the department uncancel these student loan debts? And Mm -hmm. the answers I got ranged from it's not clear to it's highly unlikely because restoring student loans after they've been erased is kind of like trying to put a sneeze back in your nose. (laughs) That is NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you, Corey. You're welcome, Elsa. 
Hey, avocado lovers, Fresh Avocados in Philadelphia, a Philly food distribution nonprofit called Sharing Excess, is handing out hundreds of thousands of avocados this week. The event has been dubbed Avogeddon. They see a walking avocado and they know they're in the right place. That's Evan Ellers. He's the founder of Sharing Excess. At one point in the day, he had to start fending off cars as supplies ran low, all while wearing an avocado costume. <laughs> Sharing Excess typically distributes directly to restaurants and food banks. But this three-day avocado giveaway to the general public became necessary when a massive surplus from South America oversaturated their typical channels. Eller says they're probably from Peru. But uh, this is, you know, over uh, a quarter million avocados. So uh, it's over 100,000 pounds. So it's about 50 to 100 times the size of our regular distributions. Dang, this comes after a shortage in the U.S. of Mexican avocados earlier this year, which is in part why production in Peru has been ramping up. Peruvian avocado shipments to the U.S. have risen by about 30 percent so far during 2022. But Miguel Gomez, a professor of food marketing at Cornell, says this isn't really an issue of surplus. We are not overproducing avocados. It's just a question of the timing. Peruvian export window ends in September. And an avocado from Peru takes between three and four weeks to get into a wholesale market in the U.S., particularly in, in Philadelphia or in California. So retailers have already moved on to selling Mexican avocados, leaving all these Peruvian avocados that have traveled so long to get here without a home. And all that means way too many avocados for sharing excess. So they decided to give them straight to the Philadelphia community because who doesn't need more avocados in their life? Harry DiNapoli certainly does. The fellow in the barbershop where I live in Sartain Street, he told me they were giving them out over here. So let me go, go down and check it out. People carrying crates of about 50 avocados each. And what are they doing with all this green gold? Here's Norhan Ibrahim with Sharing Excess. I use them on scrambled eggs. I use them in pasta sauce. I use them in smoothies. All over the place. So if you are in the area with a craving for those pitted wonders, maybe channel three-year-old Henry in the viral meme and say... This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still ahead on All Things Considered, what it was that drove teachers to strike in two Massachusetts communities this week and why only one of those communities has reached a resolution. Also ahead, Arthur, the podcast. WBUR supporters include Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu slash met. On Wall Street, stocks dipped for a second day today. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent, 90 points, to finish at 30,334. S&P fell more than three-quarters of a percent to close at 36.66. The Nasdaq lost six-tenths of a percent to end the day at 10,615. The Boston Internet provider Starry today announced it's laying off half its workforce. A company spokesperson tells the Boston Business Journal 175 Massachusetts workers are being let go. There's a freeze on hiring and non-essential expenditures. Starry CEO says the company is taking aggressive action while it works on changing its strategy. Last week, Starry pulled out of a federal program to subsidize broadband service in rural parts of the country. The forecast is coming up.
Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. A beautiful afternoon, crisp night tonight, down around 43 degrees. And then sunshine returns tomorrow, highs just about the low 60s. 58 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at Avast.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden traveled to Pennsylvania today, a state that could decide whether Democrats keep control of the Senate after the midterm elections. He went to look at a bridge that dramatically collapsed nine months ago and to talk about how things are getting fixed. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports. Hello, Pittsburgh. This is the second time Biden has visited Fern Hollow Bridge in Pittsburgh's East End. Back in January, he was on his way to the city when the bridge suddenly made headlines. On a snowy day, the bridge behind me collapsed 100 feet straight down to Fern Hollow. And uh, five cars and a bus were crossing the bridge at the time. Biden made a detour that day to check it out. He said it was lucky that no one died. But it never should have come to this. For too long, we talked about building the best economy in the world and the best infrastructure in the world. With less than three weeks until the midterm elections, the bridge was a symbolic backdrop for Biden to highlight his administration's investments, more than a trillion dollars to fix bridges, roads, seaports, and lead pipes. It's one of the biggest accomplishments from his first two years as president. We're finally getting to it. We're getting it done. Biden wasn't just highlighting money for bridges, he was also there to support his party's candidate in a tight Senate race, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who attended the event. This law is about more than rebuilding our infrastructure, it's about rebuilding the middle class. Something John knows a lot about and talks a lot about. The economy and inflation are top issues for voters in Pennsylvania and around the country. So Biden has been talking about his infrastructure law a lot as he campaigns. Instead of infrastructure weak, which is a punchline for four years under my predecessor. It's infrastructure decade, a headline on my watch. Although the infrastructure law did not directly fund this bridge repair, the White House says its funding allowed Pennsylvania's Department of Transportation to move money quickly to rebuild the bridge without having to slow down other projects. Greg Stahl, a carpenter who's working on the bridge, says it's bringing a lot of jobs. This investment is putting thousands and thousands of my union brothers and sisters to work from coast to coast. 
After the event, Biden picked up a sandwich from a famous local shop and then was off to Philadelphia to help raise money for Fetterman, who's running for an open Senate seat against TV doctor Mehmet Oz, the Republican who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. And Biden has another trip to Pennsylvania already on the books for next week. But as he previewed the bridge's anticipated completion date later this year, he seemed to add yet another visit. And by Christmas, God willing, we'll be walking. I'm coming back to walk over to sucker. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. It seems like just about everybody these days with a microphone and a laptop is making a podcast. Testing, one, two, three. Well, I can hear me, so I guess I'm ready. Including a TV star with seven Emmy Awards, a Peabody, and millions of books sold. We mean Arthur the Aardvark. Hello there! I'm Arthur Reed, and this is the Arthur Podcast. I'll be telling you about my friends and my family. Hey, Arthur! Ah! DW! The beloved PBS cartoon Arthur aired its final new episodes this year after 25 seasons. But Arthur, his sister DW, and their pals are returning to wherever you listen to podcasts. Carol Greenwald is helping Arthur make his podcast, which debuts today. She's senior executive producer at GBH Kids. Hi, Carol. Hi. Tell us what it's going to be about. Is it really just the TV show continued in our ears rather than our eyes? Well, we are repurposing some of the beloved Arthur stories into an audio format. We know that kids love these stories. They watch them over and over again. And we thought it would be fun to try to do them as podcasts. So some of the classic Arthur stories that people love heard in a different way and in an audio context. This is a podcast for a children's show. So who are you expecting your audience to be, largely children? I think we are hoping it will certainly be largely children, but we're also hoping that parents will want to listen. We know that there's a lot of co-listening that goes on between parents and kids, looking at our audience information and also through social media, that many parents, many young parents are now watching Arthur with their children, and they're so happy to introduce their kids to Arthur because they loved it so much when they were growing up. I feel like I have to admit to you that I have not watched Arthur. It's not exactly my generational show. I'm not exactly the generational demographic. Can you explain why this character is so beloved, why why so many older millennials have a really soft spot for him and the types of lessons he taught? Well, I've always said that the reason that everyone loves Arthur and his friends and his family is because they're imperfect. They are very authentic. They're very real. They make mistakes all the time. They have to figure out how to come back from them. And those stories, just those are the things that everyone connects to. So it's my feeling that by making Arthur real, by making him imperfect, he's he's somebody everybody feels a connection to. And of course, he's kind of funny too, so that helps. <laughs> and did he also spend a lot of time in stories that dealt with kindness and diversity and affirmation? Uh, I mean, was that part of the appeal as well? Yes, that was. And I think one of the other things we did from day one was to try to make sure that kids could see themselves in the television show. You know, there was like bulldogs and aardvarks and bunnies, but you could see yourself as someone who may come from a less privileged background than your friends. Um, We have a character who is autistic. We have characters in wheelchairs. 
we have a very a key character who's blind. And we've also just really tried to make sure that if you watch Arthur, you could see something that feels familiar to you in your life that you might not see anyplace else on television. I also have to ask you about what is considered a major plot discrepancy. And that is that Arthur wears his headphones on the side of his heads, just like humans do, because that's where our ears are. But I'm looking at a picture of Arthur right now, and his ears are on top of his head because he's an aardvark. But the headphones are on the side, so it looks like they're clamped to his cheeks. How do you explain this? You know, when we started making Arthur, there were no such thing as earbuds. Yeah, we did not have earbuds when we started, and so we worked with what we could, and then we've established this thing, and this is just the way Arthur wears his headphones. And somehow he manages to hear just fine. Carol, thank you. Thank you. Carol Greenwald of GBH Kids. She's executive producer of the Arthur TV show, still available on PBS Kids, and Arthur's first podcast is out now. The $800 billion Paycheck Protection Program prioritized speed over accuracy, and as a result, a lot of money was lost to fraud or went to profitable companies that didn't need it. But another problem was outdated and underfunded government technology. In many ways, we're running on the fumes of investments that were made decades earlier. How the U.S. fell behind on its computing infrastructure, tomorrow on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the North Main Woods stores a lot of carbon. With better forest management, it could store more and help New England reach a climate benchmark. But there's disagreement about how to approach it. That story's on the way. In the forecast, clear overnight tonight. It should be on the crisp side, down around 43 degrees. And then two more days of sunshine. Tomorrow, bright skies topping out in the low 60s. Saturday, sunny, about 67. Then clouds and rain on Sunday. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated. With works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Back Bay Life Science Advisors providing biopharma, health tech, and med tech with strategic guidance and transaction execution. BBLSA.com. As tensions between the U.S. and China escalate, Taiwan is caught in the middle. The U.S. says China is speeding up plans to seize the island. Right now we have a lot of efforts underway to, you know, to slow China down. But some Taiwanese fear the risk of an invasion is greater than ever. Can diplomacy deflect aggression? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden returned to his home state of Pennsylvania today, where he will hold a fundraising event later and, of course, touting his bipartisan infrastructure law ahead of the midterm elections in 19 days. 
Pennsylvania alone has already received $5.2 billion just this year for hundreds of projects across the Commonwealth. And that's just announced another $2.5 billion to fix and upgrade Pennsylvania's roads and bridges. And there'll be billions more for other projects. Biden has been particularly absent from midterm election campaigning in other pivotal states such as Georgia, Nevada and Ohio. But he keeps coming back to Pennsylvania despite his low approval ratings. Of course, he grew up there. He heads to Pennsylvania, uh, rather Philadelphia next to host a fundraiser this evening for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who has a shot at flipping Pennsylvania's open Senate seat. Jailed Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny says he faces additional charges that could could keep him behind bars for another 30 years from Moscow. NPR's Charles Maines reports on this latest twist in a political saga involving a prominent critic of the Kremlin. Alexei Navalny is already serving a nine-year sentence on fraud and embezzlement charges he says are politically motivated. He's managed to keep up a public profile and his criticism of the Kremlin by posting to social media through his lawyers, as well as by videos and publications still run by associates abroad. As a result, Navalny says authorities now plan to charge him with promoting terrorism and financing extremist activities from behind bars, charges that could keep the opposition figure in jail for decades more. A fierce critic of President Vladimir Putin Putin. Navalny was arrested last year after returning from Germany, where he recovered from a near-fatal poisoning. The Kremlin has denied involvement. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks finish lower across the board on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the state to create more housing outside the city. She says the housing can help people in the Mass and Cass area of Boston who are experiencing homelessness and have substance use disorders. Mayor Wu said today the city has placed 400 people who have been camped out in that area into emergency and permanent housing. But she says more people from all over New England are arriving seeking help. The large crowds are um, not healthy for residents who are seeking services and treatment here in, in such a, a chaotic setting and also not healthy for businesses and residents. Wu says the city is also hiring more case managers to address the challenge. A convicted murderer accused of attacking a corrections officer in the state prison in Shirley is now charged with armed assault to murder. Prosecutors say in August, Roy Booth attacked Matt Tidman with a weightlifting bar. The attack left Tidman in a coma for weeks. WBR Simone Rios reports Booth was arraigned today in Woburn. Prosecutors said Booth attacked Tidman in an effort to be transferred back to his home state of Virginia. Outside the court, Kevin Flanagan of the Massachusetts Corrections Officers Federated Union said he's concerned recent reforms are endangering officers. The Commonwealth has gone away from using restrictive housing for the most part, which means the inmates that do commit violations inside the prisons are now um, left in our general population areas uh, for our staff and our officers to deal with. Flanagan said Tidman is making a slow but steady recovery. Booth pleaded not guilty. He was denied bail and is now in a maximum security prison. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Patriots quarterback Mac Jones expects to be able to play in next Monday night's game against the Chicago Bears. That's according to a report this afternoon from ESPN's Mike Reese. Jones has missed the past three games with a high ankle sprain. Third string backup Bailey Zappi has led the team for most of those games. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. 
and Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Boston Bruins host the Anaheim Ducks tonight. The Celtics have the night off. In the forecast, October finery. Sunshine through the rest of the day. Clear tonight, down around 43. Tomorrow, sunny and a little bit milder, about 62. This is WBUR. From this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Election season is upon us. Early voting is underway in several places around the country. And if you spend any time scrolling through social media, listening to the radio or watching TV, you're probably hearing and seeing a whole lot of this. Crime is a bigger problem than ever. Crisis of human trafficking, crime, and lethal opioids. A ban on abortions. Inflation has gotten out of control. And I approve this message. And I approve this message. And I approve this message. A barrage of political ads as campaigns and the major parties drop a lot of money to turn out voters. Well, we wanted to get an idea of what campaigns are saying and how they're saying it. And here to walk us through that is Republican political strategist Alice Stewart. She's worked on many Republican presidential campaigns, including the ones for Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee. And we have Democratic political strategist Joel Payne. He worked on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and has also worked for Democratic members of Congress. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by talking about just the extraordinary amount of money being poured into ads this season. I've seen numbers of almost, what, $10 billion being spent this cycle, which is more than even the 2020 presidential election, right? Like, Alice, can you just talk about what is driving all this tremendous spending this year? As we hear every cycle and every campaign and every election, this is a very consequential election for several reasons. The 50-50 split in the Senate and over in the House, it looks as though Republicans have the opportunity to pick up seats to take control of the House. And Republicans look at this as an opportunity to put a check and balance on what they see as the very liberal, very progressive policies of the Biden administration that they see are are not working. Okay. And, And Joel, can you tell us more about like what is at stake in your mind for Democrats this cycle? You know, I think Alice makes some really good points there about just the stakes that are on every election, really, right? Every appeal is, this is the most important election of your lifetime. I also think there's a premium on reaching the voters that really make the difference. And, you know, not to get into the business of advertising, but TV stations and websites that are the places where you can reach these voters, they understand that it gets more and more expensive. Also, it depends on where you're talking about. Reaching a voter in the middle of Ohio 
cost different is different than reaching someone, say, in Florida or right. in California. Right. It's more expensive based on metropolitan areas and also the number of voters, the density of voters and how crowded the media space is. All right. Well, in terms of reaching voters on salient issues, let's do a lightning round for the both of you. Like what are, in your mind, the top three election issues for Republicans and the top three for Democrats? Alice, you go first. Clearly, you look at the polls and you talk to the voters. When it comes to Republicans, the economy and inflation are the top issues for voters, followed closely by crime and public safety for Republican voters. Joel? Well, you know, I think if you look actually at the president's actions this week, there's two of them that he's referring to, which is the economy. You look at the news about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then also the issue of abortion. The president is going to be announcing that the next session of Congress, that's going to be the first issue he puts forward. I'll put a third in there as democracy issues, January 6th, Mm. issues of preserving democracy. Those are on the minds of Democratic voters. Okay, well... We asked each of you to pick a political ad that you think is good, and we're going to play a little bit for everyone. Here is the one that Joel picked. If we have 10 conversations in one day. And we agree on seven. We crack a bottle of wine. Yes, we do. The same goes for the country. We have to stop the stupid fight. Find some common ground. And be Americans. Okay, that is from the Senate race in Ohio. It's an ad for Democrat Tim Ryan, who is running against Republican J.D. Vance, a candidate who was backed by former President Trump. And Joel, what do you think works about this ad? Well, so a couple of things. One of the reasons is because he is appealing not just to his base, but he's appealing to voters in the middle, to independents. And I think this ad is a great example of that. This is not a base turnout ad. It is an advertisement to say, even when we disagree, we can do it without being disagreeable. He's using his family to demonstrate a very common disagreement you might have around the home. It's a really effective spot because I think it also, for a lot of voters who may not know who Tim Ryan is, I think it portrays him in a positive, reasonable light. Okay. And Alice, you picked an ad from Dr. Mehmet Oz, the Republican running against Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman for a Senate seat in Pennsylvania. Let's hear a little bit from that ad. Guys like John Fetterman take everything to the extreme. Why are we letting murderers out? Why is the solution always tax and spend? Extremism on both sides makes things worse. We need balance. Less extremism in Washington. Okay. So, Alice, explain what you think the thinking is behind this ad. The thinking by the Oz campaign is that crime is through the roof in parts of Pennsylvania, specifically in the Philly suburbs, and people are concerned about who is going to represent them and really be tough on crime. He also touches on reducing taxes and the economic issues that are really impacting people across the state of Pennsylvania. So he, he was not only just talking policy points, mm. and I think it's an extremely impactful closing ad as we get to the end of the election cycle. And, and based on what the polling numbers show, crime and the economy are top issues for people in Pennsylvania. But can I just flag like what's an interesting difference in strategy, at least the strategy that these two ads represent? Tim Ryan seems to be calling for unity. He seems to be going for the middle, if you will, as Joel you know, was explaining earlier. And Mehmet Oz is kind of trying to stoke a little fear here, right, by talking about crime. We hear a lot that voters don't like negative ads, but what do you think actually stays with people? Alice, you go first. Every campaign and every candidate will say they don't want to do negative ads, but when they feel as though it will help sway undecided voters, they will certainly do it. And and I I truly don't view the Oz 
add as negative. I, I view it as a, showing the strong contrast, and it's factually accurate in terms of pointing out Fetterman's record. Uh, what I do want to note on the Tim Ryan ad, uh, this is a, an excellent example of what you do in the ad wars uh, differs from what you do on the debate stage, because he has been very forceful, and it's, it's a good stark contrast of what you can do in an ad and follow up your messaging, maybe in a different type of fierceness on the debate stage. And Ryan certainly did do that. What do you think, Joel? I think that each ad exists in a different political atmosphere and political universe. (laughs) So in Pennsylvania, the electorate looks different than in Ohio. There are more available voters to Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, I think, than there are to Tim Ryan in Ohio. Tim Ryan has to persuade more voters. He has to bring more voters in. And each state is a laboratory. It's different for each candidate and it's different in each race. So the appeals are going to be different and the circumstances are going to be different. I think reflective of maybe what Alice and I chose are also the political positions of the sides that we have both spent our careers working for. Republicans are expected to take control in two weeks. And Democrats are are trying to hold on to control of both houses of Congress and obviously the White House for 2024. So you're in very different political ecosystems, political universes, and political realities, frankly. That is Democratic strategist Joel Payne. He worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and has advised Democratic members of Congress. We also had Republican strategist Alice Stewart. She's a veteran of Republican presidential campaigns. Thank you both so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you, Joel. Thank you so much. Good to speak with you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For more than 300 years, Maine's Northwoods have supported the logging industry. Today, the forest could help New England meet its climate objectives, but how should it be managed? Susan Sharon of Maine Public Radio reports. Spanning more than 10 million acres, the Northwoods are almost entirely privately owned. Historically, they supported paper mills and towns that sprung up around them. More recently, Maine's paper industry has been in decline. Instead, large landowners like the Seven Islands Land Company have tried to diversify, turning higher quality logs into lumber at the sawmill in Ashland and using the lower quality wood for pulp and paper and to burn for heat. President and CEO Dan LaMontagne says sustainable management depends on markets for both. So as you thin the forest, as you remove the lower quality material, you're actually improving the growing conditions for the the material that you leave that will grow into the higher value product. And those higher quality products, building materials and furniture, also store carbon. According to the Maine Governor's Task Force on Carbon, they help the Northwoods capture and store 75 percent of the state's annual carbon emissions. Research suggests that by improving forest management, increasing conservation, and expanding the use of wood in building materials, the percentage could rise. The potential is huge, and we have the opportunity here in Maine specifically, to be a leader on this whole front. Alec Giffen is a forest scientist with the New England Forestry Foundation, who also serves on the state's carbon task force. He says the foundation's research, currently under peer review, shows that if timber stands were managed to grow older and bigger trees, all of New England could benefit. Our analysis shows 
that the amount of carbon that the forests could remove within the next 25 or 30 years amounts to about 30% of the total emissions reductions that we need in New England. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently awarded the Forestry Foundation and its partners $30 million to apply the research on 100,000 acres across Maine and New England. Dr. William Muma, a climate scientist and professor at Tufts University, is skeptical that significant carbon savings can be achieved on timberlands that are harvested every few decades. For every tree that's cut, more than half of it ends up as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. A lot of research just simply says that there's, there is no way you can harvest a forest and store more carbon than by letting it grow. Instead, Muma points to a recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that calls for setting aside at least 30 percent of land, inland waters, and oceans by 2030 to reduce the risks of climate change and to protect biodiversity. But Mark Berry, the Forest Program Director for the Nature Conservancy in Maine, says when it comes to carbon storage, there's room for many forms of conservation. From establishing large ecological reserves where essentially nature gets to take its course to maintaining a commercial working forest that helps to keep the larger landscape intact and connects those reserves with each other. The one point on which everyone agrees is that keeping the landscape forested is the most important climate goal. And that means compensating landowners not only for wood products, but for the other ecological and carbon storage benefits they provide. For NPR News, I'm Susan Sharon in Ashland, Maine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, two Massachusetts teacher strikes, two different paths. Also understanding question three on the November ballot. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen to the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at CambridgeTrust.com slash WayToWealth. Boston Bruins are back at the Garden tonight to host the Anaheim Ducks. And in the forecast, clear skies over the next several hours and overnight tonight, two temperatures about 43 degrees and then two more days of sunshine. Beautiful tomorrow up around the low 60s. Saturday sunny again. Clouds, though, for Sunday. WBUR supporters include Longis School of Music's free Gessner Shock-In Concert, November 4th. Jennifer Curtis, violin, and Nilofar Shirin Komanchi show the power of bowed instruments to forge cultural connection. Corporations facing massive litigation are using a new bankruptcy strategy to avoid liability. It's known as the Texas Two-Step. When the richest and most powerful corporations in the country are using the federal bankruptcy system to avoid paying the most vulnerable people in the country, something is wrong. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This week, teachers in two Massachusetts school districts, Malden and Haverhill, went on strike. They argued their schools are not set up to succeed, and they say they're understaffed and undersupported, and that teacher pay is too low. The Malden strike ended just after a day. The Haverhill strike is now in its fourth day. WBR's Max Larkin is here to help us parse out the differences in the labor actions. Max, first, what are the striking teachers' concerns about both pay and working conditions? Yeah, they've argued that educators in their districts haven't been making what they could make in other districts nearby within driving distance. So that's both teachers and paraprofessionals, the support staff that help maybe the youngest kids or kids with disabilities. The union said other districts lured educators away, which resulted in vacancies and overwork for the people who were left. And that's backed up by data, Lisa. Better paying districts have had more success keeping teachers in the past five years, while a place like Haverhill has an average turnover of around 14% each year. Haverhill's average teacher salary is around $75,000, which is $10,000 less than the state average. There, These are the second and third strikes in Massachusetts so far this year. The first was in Brookline. Why strikes in these particular communities? Well, yeah, we should note that teacher strikes are unusual in this state because they're prohibited under state law and they can result in the kind of hefty fines that teachers in Haverhill are now facing. But in terms of why these communities, Malden and Haverhill are both diverse cities with relatively low pay for educators. Peter Piazza is a parent of a kindergartner in Malden and an education researcher. He told he told me that neither city has a really big diversified tax base to prop up its budget. Take Malden, for instance. It's not Cambridge in terms of the tax base. It's not Everett in terms of having a casino or Somerville. Like our income is residential and that to a great extent is limited by Prop 2.5. Proposition two and a half is, of course, the state law that caps property tax increases. So relatively small tax bases and both cities have mayors who are worried about fitting everything in their budgets. Massachusetts, as you know, passed a law in 2019 to send more state aid to districts, especially those that are under-resourced. And there's been a lot of federal pandemic aid delivered to schools. So how can it be that cities cannot afford to pay more now? Well, I think the issue is that even if they might be able to afford to pay more, it doesn't mean that they necessarily do. In Haverhill, for example, total total spending on schools has gone up this year, but only because the state and federal governments are footing more of the bill. The longtime mayor, Jim Fiorentini, decided to cut the city's contribution to schools by over $600,000. That move was controversial. Here's school committee member Richard Rosa in a heated exchange with Mayor Fiorentini at a hearing. What taxpayers hate is when politicians come along, see a pot of money, and think it's a piggy bank. The money is for one purpose and one purpose only, to benefit the schools and to benefit these students and to close the achievement gap. I think that helps explain why the strike in Haverhill has dragged on. Teachers felt like the state had made this once-in-a-generation investment in their work, only for that windfall to be eaten into by their own local officials. You mentioned uh, that it's not just pay that is driving teacher shortages, though. What are the other factors? Yeah, researchers point to the fact that for a decade and more, interest in teaching as a career has been declining. And they say it's not just about pay, but intangible things like social esteem, respect for the work. 
Matthew Kraft is a professor of education and economics at Brown University. He says, think about the last two years for educators. They've been on the front lines of the pandemic, and they were also used as what he calls a political punching bag. So pay matters, but teachers are asking for more than that. They're asking for the types of supports that allow them to do their job successfully. Given that, Kraft says raising teaching salaries across the board probably should be on the table now, but he says it's not enough. Just as important is making sure that teachers feel supported and trusted and have the personnel and training and time they need to really do their jobs the best they can. So in summary, Max, what is the latest on the resolution of these labor actions in Malden and Haverhill? Yeah, Malden educators reached a deal with school officials Monday, and the union membership voted to ratify that contract just yesterday. We don't know the specifics yet, but the agreement likely boosts paraprofessional pay by a lot with smaller raises for ordinary teachers. Haverhill educators were supposedly close on a deal last night, but as of this afternoon, they're still in negotiations, apparently stuck not on pay, but on a school safety provision. I've heard from parents who are pulling for a resolution quickly so kids can get back to school ASAP. Thank you. WBR's Max Larkin, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Massachusetts voters will soon decide whether to allow retailers to sell beer and wine at up to twice as many locations as they can now. It's question three on the November ballot. A yes vote would double the number of beer and wine licenses any business can hold. It would jump from nine to 18. But the proposal reduces the number of licenses a business can have to sell hard liquor. WBR's Vanessa Ochevillo explains. Supporters of question three see the increase in the license cap as a compromise between two opposing interests. On one hand, some large national chains want more licenses. On the other, smaller businesses are concerned too many licenses would make it difficult for them to compete. The Massachusetts Association of Package Stores is leading the Yes campaign on question three. Rob Melian is the group's executive director. If we can get a few years of stabilization as a result of voters voting yes on question three, then it's a win for local businesses. It's a win for the large corporations because they're going to get more licenses. It's a win for the consumer because public safety is part of question three. But opponents like the Retailers Association of Massachusetts say license caps shouldn't exist at all, and licensed businesses should be able to sell any alcohol they want. General Counsel Ryan Kearney says his group wants a free market approach. Let the government get out of the way. Let business compete in an open and fair market. And then whoever offers the best product or the best product offering or the best experience, the one that comes out on top. The company Total Wine & More is the biggest backer of the No on 3 campaign. It has spent over $2 million on ads. Total Wine is based in Maryland but has seven locations in Massachusetts. The company says it opposes the reduction in hard liquor licenses because it singles out package stores like them. Question three also would change how the state calculates the penalty a retailer pays when it violates liquor laws, like when it sells to a minor. Right now, the fine is based solely on alcohol sales. But question three would move to include sales from other goods like food and toiletries in the calculation. This would make violations more costly for retailers that sell products other than alcohol. Proponents say this ensures there is an effective deterrent for bigger companies that boast more profits. But opponents call it anti-competitive. 
Question three would also ban alcohol purchases at self-checkout and allow stores to accept out-of-state driver's licenses to check for age. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. Join us tomorrow on All Things Considered as we outline question two on the November ballot. It asks voters whether to make changes to dental insurance regulations. You can find more on all the ballot questions and information on key election deadlines. It's all in our voter guide at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and Frightful Fridays. Enjoy spooky tales told outdoors if you dare. Fridays in October in Waltham, goreplace.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. British Prime Minister Liz Truss has resigned after just 45 days in office. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. We'll have a closer look at the UK's political turmoil and what Brexit has to do with it. Coming up on this Thursday, October 20th, this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead after inflation and abortion. Pollsters say crime is one of the biggest issues on voters' minds this year. I think the Republican logic goes like this. Fear, 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 Willie Horton. That's their logic. Fewer people are going to college this fall, but it's a smaller decline than in the first two years of the pandemic. And a new poll finds a majority of Americans are stressed out by inflation, violence, and the political state of the country. These stories and much more coming up. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. With the midterm elections fast approaching, President Biden is working to drum up support for Democrats. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden is campaigning in Pennsylvania today, where Democrats are hoping to flip the state's open U.S. Senate seat. President Biden used the construction site at the Fern Hollow Bridge as a backdrop to highlight ongoing efforts to rebuild critical infrastructure across the nation. Most of the last century, we led the world by a significant margin because we invested in our people, we invested in ourselves, we invested in our land. But along the way, we stopped doing that, but not anymore. 
We're back on track. After that, it was on to Philadelphia, where Biden is headlining a fundraiser for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee for Pennsylvania's open Senate seat. It's one of the pivotal few that could flip from Republican control after the midterm elections. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Philadelphia. A race to replace British Prime Minister Liz Truss has begun. As NPR's Frank Langford reports, the Conservative Party is trying to put a new leader in place as soon as possible. Potential candidates include Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Britain's Treasury Secretary, and Penny Mordaunt, who serves as leader of the House of Commons. Both were among the finalists for the Prime Minister's job this past summer, before Liz Truss won. Some allies of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson are urging him to run. Johnson's been popular with the Conservative Party membership, but is deeply unpopular nationally. He was forced to resign after lying about government parties during the pandemic lockdown, including two he attended. To be considered, candidates must get at least 100 other conservative lawmakers to support them. The party plans to begin to narrow the field Monday. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Attorney General Merrick Garland said today the U.S. will work with the international community to prosecute Russian forces accused of committing war crimes in Ukraine. He spoke today after meeting with German Justice Minister Marco Bushman, declaring the two countries are committed to bringing war criminals to justice. We are committed to finding ways to expand our cooperation with our German partners in these efforts. We discussed those today, and we are committed to continuing to work closely with our international partners to defend democracy and to uphold the rule of law. Bushman said they agree there must be no safe havens for the perpetrators of war crimes. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said today the U.S. can confirm that Iran has sent dozens of drones to Russia to use in strikes against cities across Ukraine, including the capital, Kyiv. He said it's likely more shipments will be sent. On Wall Street, the Dow closed down today 90 points. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MIT has named its next president. 61-year-old Sally Kornbluth is a cell biologist who was provost at Duke University for the past eight years. She will become MIT's 18th president and the second woman to run the institution. Kornbluth will take over from Raphael Reif on January 1st. In February, he announced that he's stepping down after 10 years as president of MIT. The largest container ship ever to come to Boston has arrived in the Connolly Terminal in South Boston. A spokeswoman for Massport says the ship is carrying 13,500 containers. It made stops in Vietnam and China before it came to Boston today. Massport recently installed new cranes, and the harbor was dredged in order to handle larger ships that are used in international trade. A man described as a drifter is being charged with murdering a Concord, New Hampshire couple in April. Authorities arrested 26-year-old Logan Clegg last week on a parole violation in Vermont. New Hampshire Attorney General Don Formula announced the charges against Clegg today. He did not discuss a motive for the shooting deaths. The Attorney General's Office and the Concord Police Department are continuing to investigate the circumstances surrounding the murders of Stephen and Wendy Reed. We recognize and appreciate the assistance of the public, and we ask that the public continue to assist us. The Concord couple was found dead on a walking trail close to their apartment. People have been winning at the gambling tables in the state's casinos, but oh, child support have seen some of their winnings seized by the state. Massachusetts law requires gaming facilities to verify whether large money winners owe such debts so the money can be intercepted if need be. 
This fiscal year, the state has retrieved more than $3.6 million in unpaid child support and back taxes through the effort. That's up about $200,000 from the year before. In the forecast, a nice autumn night ahead. Clear skies falling to the low 40s. Tomorrow could rise to about 62 with sunshine returning. Sun's back for Saturday, 67 for a high. And then Sunday, cloudy and maybe wet. Showers likely off and on, just about 61 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The amount of stress that people in this country feel keeps going up. That's according to a new poll by the American Psychological Association, which finds that a majority of American adults are stressed about rising prices, violence, the political state of the country. Well, to tell us more about these findings, we're joined now by NPR health correspondent Ritu Chatterjee. Hey, Ritu. Hey, Elsa. So, I mean, I guess these findings aren't all that surprising given everything that's happened the last couple of years. But can you just tell us more? What did this survey find exactly? Yeah, you're right. They may not be, uh, they aren't that surprising, but I will say that some of the details are really striking. So over 80% of adults surveyed said that inflation is a significant source of stress for them. Now, that's a huge majority. Um, I spoke with psychologist Vale Wright with the American Psychological Association, and she told me that it's really hard not to worry about rising prices these days. Because they hit us every day, they're hard to escape, and we're constantly reminded about how we're going to have to pay for groceries, how we're going to have to pay for gas, how we're going to pay for rent. And, you know, understandably, people with annual incomes of 50000 uh, or less were much more likely to be struggling with these than those with higher incomes. And the poll also found that there's widespread disillusionment about people in the government, worries over ra- the racial climate, the political state of the country, gun violence. And over a quarter of the people surveyed, they are so stressed they can't even function. A quarter? Of people, that's kind of huge. Mm-hmm. But what what does that mean? Yeah. Not being able to function. So things like not being able to concentrate, um, you know, forgetfulness, struggling to make decisions because of stress. In eighteen to forty four year olds were more likely to report feeling this way, and overall, about three quarter of the respondents said that stress was negatively affecting their lives. Vale Wright says seventy six percent. Uh, said that they'd experienced at least one stress-related health symptom. That included things like headaches, feeling nervous or anxious, feeling overwhelmed or worrying constantly. Um, And we know that these types of symptoms, when they're unmanaged, can have negative physical and mental health consequences. You know, Elsa, we tend to think of stress as like a mental thing, but it affects our entire physiology. And research shows that chronic stress can, in the long run, cause more infections, heart attacks, diseases like obesity and diabetes. Absolutely. I mean, I do think it's important that we're talking about this because this has been an especially difficult time for all of us, right? Pandemic, war in Europe, inflation. Mm -hmm. What do you suggest we do to better manage our stress during this time? 
So I put that question to psychologist Elisa Apple at the University of California, San Francisco. She has a new book coming out soon about managing stress. And she told me that it's important to actively try and stop dwelling on the future and things that are beyond our control. And you know, as you and I, most people know that when we're stressed, we just try to muscle our way through our days, focusing on what needs to get done. But Apple says it's really important to check in with our emotions and acknowledge how we feel to let some of that worries worry go. And deep breathing is a really good way to do that. Breathing is one of the most direct routes to reducing stress in our body and our mind. And so taking these short breathing breaks are actually critical to help us reduce burnout and get through a day. I'm sorry, I hear people talk all the time about deep breathing, but when I'm really stressed, slowing down is the last thing on my mind. But you're about to tell me this really works. It does, and research backs it up. And here's another tip from psychiatrist Jesse Gold. We really like to blow off sleep and think that it doesn't have this huge impact on us. But if we aren't sleeping, a lot of the other things are struggling too. So Elsa, breathe and try to get a good night's sleep. Ha, all right. That is NPR's V2 Chatterjee. Thank you, V2. Thank you, Elsa. Pollsters say crime is one of the three big issues on the minds of voters this year, along with inflation and abortion. Republicans blame Democrats for rising violent crime, while Democrats brag about funding the police. NPR's Martin Costi reports from the battleground state of Pennsylvania. The Republican playbook here is similar to what we've been seeing around the country. Take this TV ad by Senate candidate Mehmet Oz. Weak prosecutors, crime skyrocketing, failed liberal policies making us less safe. And in Pennsylvania, the political symbol of crime is the biggest city, Philadelphia. It's suffered a terrible wave of violence recently as the number of shooting victims has jumped almost 60% to two years. Yolanda Jennings lives in West Philly. She's an activist with a group called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. I get emotional. I, I really get emotional because I do love this city so much. And it's very hard to, to watch the things going on in the city. At the same time, Jennings says she's unhappy with the role that the city's being cast in during this election cycle. We're being used as political tools. Standing at the center of all this is Larry Krasner. He's Philly's progressive district attorney, a nationally known figure in the movement for less incarceration. The Republican-controlled state house has targeted him with something called the Select Committee on Restoring Law and Order. It's been holding hearings throughout the campaign season. Here's State Representative John Lawrence opening one of the sessions with a litany of tragic headlines. Two-year-old shot in another night of gun violence in Philly. Girl, eight, caught in the crossfire as nearly 50 shots fired in North Philadelphia. So this is not normal. It is not okay. The committee could end up recommending Krasner's impeachment, and that would be just fine with Charles Strange. Uh, I think they definitely have to get rid of Krasner. Wearing a Trump hat and a Phillies jacket, Strange lives in Bucks County, where the select committee just held a hearing on whether Philly crime is now spilling into the suburbs. He believes it is. Oh, it's here. And what are you going to do when you, when they, you lock them up throughout the next day? Ask Krasner about all this, and he sees politics and racism. I think the Republican logic goes like this. Fear, 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 Willie Horton. That's their logic. Krasner's in his downtown office, sitting underneath a poster of the police mugshots of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. Philadelphians re-elected him by a wide margin last year, 
And he says that's why the Republican legislature is now talking about impeaching him. It is a fundamentally anti-democratic, fundamentally fascistic effort to erase the votes of the people whose elected official they elect. He says it's true that he doesn't prosecute lower-level crimes such as prostitution or marijuana possession, but he most certainly does go after gun crime. As to the midterms, Krasner says statewide Democrats might do better this year if they took a chance and embraced what he's been trying to do in Philadelphia. There's this huge segment of votes who are left and they are progressive and they're black and they're brown and they're broke, and they will come out for reform prosecutors. And the mainstream Democratic Party is running away from victory and they're running away from success. But outside the city, Democratic candidates are not about to take that advice. In Wilkes-Barre, two hours north of Philly, Congressman Matt Cartwright has just announced a million dollars in federal grants to help hire more local cops. So please join me in saluting these valiant police officers and police departments and commend them on the work that they've done to make our community safer. Cartwright's in a tight race against Republican challenger Jim Bognett, and he won't be dragged into giving an opinion about what's happening in Philadelphia. We are immensely proud of the Philadelphia Phillies. We love the Philadelphia Eagles, but we don't really want the problems that they have in Philadelphia with crime and policing and the things that Mr. Krasner is dealing with. So um, I don't have a lot to say about uh, what the answers are there. It's a strategy that's best summed up by Cartwright's latest TV ad in which the Democratic congressman is endorsed by a man in a red MAGA hat who says he's for the police. Martin Costi, NPR News, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Hurricane Ian's 150-mile-per-hour winds broke the Sanibel Causeway in five different spots, and it meant that anyone without a boat couldn't get to the island. Well, three weeks on, that has changed. As Eileen Kelly from member station WGCU reports, residents are now driving home. The Sanibel Causeway isn't just a three-mile road that connects the island to the mainland. It's always been a path to a different way of life, one where giant birds, turtles, and sometimes alligators roam neighborhood streets mostly made of crushed shells. Now, at the end of the causeway, there are piles of rubble for as far as the eye can see. But there's also something familiar, Lori Kachari's smiling face. Kachari who's a civilian with the police department, waves to islanders as they drive home for the first time since the hurricane. The causeway has now reopened to residents and disaster and recovery workers after quick emergency repairs. Kachari's been a fixture at the intersection for years. It's one of the few four-way stops on the island. She usually ushers traffic during the busy tourist season. Now, it's all about the residents, and she's happy to be back and see people's smiling faces as they come home. That's going to make me sleep well at night tonight. <laughs> There's also a fire truck parked at the intersection with a banner draped over it. So this fire truck. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. They just pull it up here and it says it all. Welcome home. Bruised but not broken. While Islander's spirits may not be broken, its charm and many homes and businesses are. Luke Century, who's a well-known glass artist and resident of 38 years, drove his van across the causeway to try to salvage what he can of his waterlogged home. Uh, I've been inside and it's just smashed to smithereens. Outside, broken pieces of his artwork litter his yard. But amidst the shards of glass, he's able to find beauty. A fragrant Joewood, a special South Florida plant, catches his eye. The Joewood here is blooming and it's one of the sweetest smelling uh, flowers here. Come. Come smell it. Look at these blooms right here. It's outrageous. Oh. But look how well it's done. 
it's well suited for this kind of environment. And we may be too, you know, humans are, are good at recovering and hopefully many of us will keep that spirit alive that we knew. That's a common feeling among many islanders. They were initially drawn to Sanibel because of its quiet charm and wildlife. And even after Ian, they're determined to rebuild and stay. For NPR News, I'm Eileen Kelly on Sanibel Island. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, why the decline in college enrollment is finally letting up. And a closer look at the U.K.'s political turmoil as the new prime minister steps down and what Brexit has to do with it all. Those stories still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Stocks dipped for a second day today. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent, 90 points, to finish at 30,334. S&P fell more than three-quarters of a percent to close at 36.66. The Nasdaq lost six-tenths of a percent to end the day at 10,615. Massachusetts companies were ranked 10th in the nation for defense contracts in fiscal year 21. The Department of Defense spent more than $21 billion on contracts in the state. The Bay State has also had one of the largest overall increases in defense spending from fiscal 2019 to 2020. That was primarily driven by Cambridge-based Moderna's development of COVID vaccines. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com go. And the Wheeler School, where learning is an adventure. From expansive lower school enrichment to upper school molecular biology. Open house this Saturday, wheelerschool.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. Some beautiful late afternoon sunshine. Sunshine should go through the evening hours, then a clear night ahead tonight, about 43 for a low. Tomorrow should make it to the low 60s. Sunshine returns. And for the weekend, a mixed bag right now. Saturday should be pretty glorious. Sunshine temperatures about 67, not too breezy. For Sunday, showers may move in with lots of clouds. Highs about 61. 55 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Well, the numbers are in for college enrollment. The good news is after historic drops during the pandemic, enrollment declines seem to be slowing. The bad news? There are still fewer students choosing to go to college. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports. During the first two years of the pandemic, about a million fewer students enrolled in college. This fall... Undergraduate enrollment is still down compared to a year ago. 
but not by nearly as much. I certainly wouldn't call this a recovery. Doug Shapiro leads the Research Center at the National Student Clearinghouse, which released the preliminary data. We're seeing smaller declines, but when you're in a deep hole, the fact that you're only digging a tiny bit further <laughs> is not really good news. The declines are at all types of institutions, private nonprofits, four-year public schools, and for-profit colleges. Community colleges saw the smallest decline, down just 0.4% compared to the fall of 2021, buoyed by a big increase in high school students, dual enrolled in college classes, and new freshmen. That's good news because community colleges were the hardest hit during the pandemic, with enrollment drops in the double digits. But even before the pandemic, fewer people were going to college. And there's a few issues going on in enrollment these days, <laughs> to say the least, to say the least. Angel Perez leads the National Association for College Admission Counseling. The biggest challenge, there are fewer 17 and 18 year olds in the U.S. And the ones that are graduating, well, the pandemic has them reconsidering the value of a degree. Many of the students who chose not to go to college during the pandemic have not returned to college. And so the question we are all asking ourselves in higher education is, have we lost a generation of young people into the pipeline into higher education? Perez cites inflation, questions about college affordability, concerns about student debt, and a strong labor market for unskilled workers as the major factors keeping prospective students away from enrolling. He says fewer students getting a degree or a certificate, it's not just a crisis for colleges who rely on tuition dollars, it's also a big problem for the future American workforce. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News. Slavery was already present at the birth of the United States and it stuck around for nearly another century. In its place came segregation and systemic discrimination, which left the country with racial inequities to this day. But when it comes to correcting these historical injustices with reparations, there's a central dilemma. No one should be blamed for the sins of the fathers, as the scripture puts it. And yet we live in a world that has been damaged by history, and we have a responsibility, I think, to do what we can to repair the world. That's Andrew Del Banco, a professor of American studies at Columbia University. Last night, he gave the National Endowment for the Humanities annual Jefferson Lecture, in which he laid out his case for reparations. When we spoke earlier this week, Del Banco said some damages may be able to be quantified, but there are other serious deprivations that are hard to put a dollar figure on. The less measurable injuries, which we associate with the term Jim Crow, remain mind-boggling to me when we read about them. Black people being pushed off the sidewalk if a white woman walked by. Children being told that you can't go to the local water park or the swimming pool. Not to mention the persistence of random beatings and lynchings that were an ever-present danger for black Americans well into the 20th century. The impact of these experiences, even if they were menacing possibilities rather than actual experiences for individuals, it's impossible to measure the impact that that had. How do we put a monetary value on these things, especially the ones that are intangible? I don't think we can. For me, the more sensible and the more plausible approach to this 
is to recognize that many Americans have been injured by history, notably black Americans, who have a good case to make that they're at the head of that line, but there are many others. What we need to do, and I, I take my cue here from a great person from the past, that is Dr. King, and from a young scholar, Olafemi Taiwo, who teaches at Georgetown University, who speaks of reparations not as a process of payback or settling scores, but as a construction project, a future-oriented reconstruction of our society to ensure that the kinds of depredations that black people and many others have had to deal with will be mitigated in the future. And, you know... Well, and let's let's talk about how that could turn into some form of compensation, because it's interesting. You're saying you can't exactly put a dollar value on these, but you do need to find a way to compensate. What other forms of benefits could we give people that aren't just a check mailed to someone? You can imagine the sorts of policies that someone who takes this point of view would have in mind, providing better access to quality health care, to try to close those shocking gaps in infant mortality, maternal deaths and childbirth, and many other measures on which black Americans still lag behind. Providing a better educational opportunities beyond those early years. I can go on with the list in this vein. The point is that because black Americans trail behind white Americans in almost every category of human flourishing that you can think of, if we build a society which gives people a fairer start, then by definition, benefits will flow disproportionately to black Americans because they have been disproportionately dispossessed. Inevitably, some white people, especially low-income white people who themselves feel mistreated or forgotten by society, will be resentful that benefits are proposed for disadvantaged black people when they feel that they're also owed something. How do you handle those, those resentments and that resistance? Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical of a narrowly racially targeted reparations program or idea. I invoked Dr. King a little while ago. He correctly predicted that white people would not tolerate for long a program of special benefits for black people, especially white people who feel that they've got just as short an end of the stick as their black neighbors. And in many cases, that's true. This has to be a multiracial program of reparations. There's an unfairness problem in our society. We have an opportunity for those people to come together and form a coalition of common interest to rebuild what Dr. King called the network of mutuality. It's a great phrase from his letter from a Birmingham jail. We have to recognize that our neighbor's interest is our interest. And you feel hopeful, even though currently, for example, loan forgiveness is such a hot-button issue, with many people feeling like the government is spending too much and forgiving too much. You think that a reparation that involved types of loan forgiveness could survive in this climate? (laughs) I have to feel hopeful, Sasha, for two reasons. One, because I have three grandchildren, and another because, as an historian, I try to take the long view. And while there are many discouraging developments every day on the news... There's a lot of resilience in this country. There's a lot of decency and fairness in this country. And if we could just tap into that, if we could just tamp down the shouting and start talking to and listening to each other, I really do think we can get to a better place. Andrew Del Banco is Alexander Hamilton Professor of American Studies at Columbia University. Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, writer and director Martin McDonough reunited with In Bruges stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson for the new drama comedy The Banshees of Inchirin. Bob Mandela's review is still ahead. In the forecast, bright and lovely this evening. Clear skies tonight, breezy and brisk, down around 43 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, a little bit warmer, could reach 62. Then for the weekend, Saturday should be the sunnier day, moving up to 67. Some clouds move in for Sunday. The chance of showers, right around 60 degrees for high. This is WBUR, 55 degrees now at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose. Spanish and Mediterranean small plates with a modern twist. Dinner Tuesday through Sunday, lunch and brunch on weekends. Private parties welcome. Dr. Linda Vidon, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House says the U.S. has evidence that Iranian troops are directly engaged on the ground in Crimea, supporting Russian drone attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure and civilian population. White House National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby says Iran sent a small number of trainers and tech support to Crimea, a part of Ukraine that was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. These are systems that the Russian armed forces are not familiar using. Um, I mean, these are organically manufactured Iranian UAVs, and the Russians just don't have anything in their inventory. So um, it follows that they would need a little training on how to pilot these things. It was over the summer that the Pentagon first revealed that Russia was purchasing Iranian drones to launch against Ukraine. Iran denies it. Kirby says the administration is looking at imposing new sanctions on Tehran, and nuclear talks are now off the table. People who use housing subsidies have won a landmark settlement in the District of Columbia. NPR's Jennifer Lutton tells us three real estate companies there will pay $10 million for allegedly discriminating against such tenants. D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine says the companies imposed extra fees and additional requirements for people with housing vouchers. One email from a broker talked about finding every possible way to reject such applicants. Racine says in D.C. that means discriminating against black renters, many of them multi-generational residents who face displacement due to rising rents. The companies also rejected vouchers often used to get families out of homelessness. Landlords in many places are not obligated to accept housing vouchers, but D.C. and 19 other states specifically ban housing discrimination based on someone's source of income. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the first time since the start of August, none of the state of Massachusetts is considered to be an extreme drought. But the U.S. Drought Monitor reports that 88 percent of the state is considered abnormally dry. It's the first time that figure has been less than 100 percent since July. It's looking as if a warmer-than-average winter is ahead for New England. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. It released its winter outlook today. John Gottschalk is with NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. 
currently are November, December, and January outlook do tend to uh, have a slight tilt in the odds towards above normal temperatures along the eastern seaboard, including Boston and uh, lower New England. We're not able to uh, accurately or reliably say how much above normal uh, for the season in those areas. The report offered no outlook for the frequency or severity of winter storms. That can only be predicted a week or so in advance. MIT has named a new president following an eight-month-long search. Sally Kornbluth will become MIT's 18th president and only its second woman to hold the position. WBR's Vanessa Ochavillo has more on today's announcement. Kornbluth is a cell biologist and the Duke University provost. She spent the last eight years as the chief academic officer at Duke, where she spoke with hundreds of students to inform improvements to campus life. And she plans to take a similar approach at MIT. I want to spend time really getting to know the people and the institution. I want to hear the full range of views and perspectives. And I want to help the people of MIT make MIT even better. Kornbluth takes the reins from current President Raphael Reif, who announced in February he would step down after 10 years in the role. Kornbluth starts in January. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo. The Anaheim Ducks will be on the ice at the Garden tonight to meet up with the Bruins, 7 p.m. start time. And the forecast, enough sunshine to take us into the evening. Then a clear night tonight, about 43 for a low. Tomorrow should make it to the low 60s. Sunshine's back. And then for the weekend, Saturday should be a gorgeous day. Sunshine, temperatures around 67 degrees, not too breezy. Then for Sunday, though, clouds, showers moving in, highs about 61. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, British Prime Minister Liz Truss resigned after a 45-day tenure. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. That was her announcement in front of 10 Downing Street this morning. Just a few weeks ago, the British pound hit an all-time low. Amid political and economic turmoil, one question coming up a lot is, how did the U.K. get here? Did the Brexit vote six years ago play any role? Well, to talk about that, Financial Times political editor George Parker joins us now from London. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Okay, so we just heard Liz Truss mention her mandate there, which was to deliver high economic growth, low taxes. How would you characterize what went so wrong in all of this? Well, I suppose the simplest way to look at it is this the government led by Liz Truss became taken over by arch free marketeers who unfortunately didn't seem to understand how the free market works. So they launched a series of economic policies and tax cuts funded by huge amounts of borrowing into an already volatile international situation on the economy 
and the markets took one look at it, decided the sums didn't add up. They thought the government was being reckless. They thought it was undermining some of the institutions that normally act as guardrails to any economic policy, like the Bank of England, for example. And they started selling British assets. The markets went into free fall and the government quickly had to reverse reverse tack. Okay, I hear you. But the thing is, British politics, I mean, it's been pretty turbulent since the UK voted to leave the European Union in 2016. And I mean, by the end of this month, your country will have had, what, five prime ministers in a little more than six years. How much do you think Brexit is to blame in all of that turnover? I think it's certainly certainly a very large element of it. It's introduced an element of division into British politics that wasn't there before. As you remember, the vote in 2016 split the country down mm-hmm. the middle. And the and the winners, um, including the people who've been running the government in the last 44 days, believed that they had to show that Brexit worked. They had to deliver on what this Trust was even today calling the promise of Brexit, by which he means deregulating stuff, cutting taxes, and turning Britain into a small state, sort of version of uh, Singapore. The problem is, those policies, as it turned out, didn't fly with the markets. They also didn't fly with the electorate because the opinion polls suggest the public hated some of this stuff, uh, including tax cuts for the rich, for example, and they rejected it. So Brexit sort of injects this sort of a toxicity into the British political bloodstream, hmm. destabilised what would traditionally be seen as rather a stable democracy, the UK, and it's become increasingly frenetic. So we ended up looking, we have ended up looking in the last few years more like country like Greece or Italy, I guess. Well, have you seen any financial benefits since the UK left the EU? What do you think? No, no. I mean, the the Financial Times that I work for, of course, there's a paper which opposed Brexit, so I should say that. But look, I mean, the official government forecasters say that Brexit will leave the UK in the medium term about 4% poorer than it otherwise would have been. And that amounts to a huge hit to revenues to the Treasury, about £40 billion a year which coincidentally is exactly the hole that Liz Trust was trying to fill in the public finances. So it's a, that has definitely been a problem. It's made making doing trade with the European Union more difficult. It's made life harder for small businesses. And it's extremely hard to point at anything, really, which counts as a benefit of Brexit. That is George Parker, political editor for the Financial Times, talking about the role that Brexit may have played in all the political and economic turmoil turmoil that we have seen in the UK. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. The, the dark new comedy, The Banshees of Inisherin, doesn't have any banshees. What it does have are actors Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And critic Bob Mondello says when they're working with filmmaker Martin McDonough, they are plenty. A patchwork quilt of lush green farms, Inisharan is a rocky island just off the coast of Ireland where everyone knows everyone and Parrick and Colm have long seemed inseparable until... Colm's sonny Larry. Didn't you and he used to be the best of friends? We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Colm does when Parrick catches him at the pub. Sit somewhere else. But I have my pint there, Colm. He has his pint there, Colm, from when he came in and ordered his pint before. No? Okay. I'll sit somewhere else. Even having been warned, Parrick is blindsided, but as played by an ever-optimistic Colin Farrell, he does the sensible thing, follows Brendan Gleeson's column outside, determined to make peace. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was, and I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. But you didn't say anything to me. 
and you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You didn't like me yesterday. The wounded look that comes into Farrell's eyes, you'd think would melt the stoniest heart, but Colm is unmoved, much to the astonishment of the pub regulars from young Dominic. Why does he not want to be friends with you anymore? Why is he 12? To the parish priest. Why aren't you talking to Parrot no more? That wouldn't be a sin, though, would it, Father? No, but it's not very nice either, is it? Colm isn't buying. You know who we remember for how nice they was in the 17th century? Who? Absolutely no one. Yet we all remember the music of the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name. I don't, so there goes that theory. Parik again. These guys really don't have a lot in common. Colm artistically inclined. Parik sweet-natured, but not remotely curious about anything except his equally sweet-natured donkey. Writer-director Martin McDonough could keep the odd couple shtick going indefinitely, but as in In Bruges, with these same actors as hitmen, or his caustic take on small-town America, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, McDonough's using comedy to get at something darker. If you don't stop bothering me, I have a set of shears at home, and each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears, and I'll take one of my fingers off with them, and I'll give that finger to you until I have no fingers left. Does this make things clearer to you? Not really, no. Starting from now. In a McDonough story, that sort of threat's never idle, nor are the furies that fuel it. The Banshees of Inisherin is probably the closest of McDonough's films to the scalding stage work that made his reputation. But more than his writing and sharp direction, it's the performances that register. Carrie Condon, commonsensical as Parrick's protective sister. You can't just all of a sudden stop being friends with a fella. Barry Keegan's endearingly dim bulb. Would you not want him to have to do the one finger to see if he was bluffing like? No, we wouldn't. Because worse goes to worse, he can still play the fiddle with four fingers, I bet you. And the two leads, seeming to have just stepped out of a Samuel Beckett play, friendship unraveling as they're waiting for Godot, or something just as elusive. Gleason, a hard-headed giant, Farrell, eyes brimming at once hopeful and anguished, twinned pals, you'll empathize with both, in a tale of buddies that plays like a blood feud. The Banshees of Inisherin, if they actually existed, would be shrieking at and for this mythic, funny, haunting pair. I'm Bob Mandela. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. These days, it's easy to download video games from an online store directly onto your PC or console. That has the obvious benefit of getting your game immediately without having to leave your house, but it also opens up some technical loopholes, like price tourism. That's when players change their location online in order to buy games in countries with weaker economies. For example, instead of paying $25 for a certain video game in the U.S., a player could pretend to be in Argentina and pay just $2 for that same game. John Walker wrote about this for the video game website Kotaku, and he joins us. Hi, John. Hi, thanks for having me. John, some of our listeners may not realize that certain video games and other types of products are priced differently in different parts of the world, but that is the case. How common is that? It's incredibly common. It's the norm across all consoles and uh, PC. Everything is, is priced locally, normally in blocks. But yeah, regional pricing is, is totally the norm. 
Maybe you could tell us in terms of a, one particular case you wrote about, a game where a particular bunch of people engaged in this so-called price tourism, and it actually helped the developers, even though players were buying the game for much less than they would in the US. How did that play out? So it was an interesting case. It was a game called Let's Build a Zoo that came out on PC last year and did very, very well. It's published by an independent publisher called No More Robots from a developer called Spring Loaded. They've made a console version that came out at the end of September this year. In the week before it was due to come out, it was available for pre-orders on the Nintendo Switch and they started piling in. But then the owner of uh, No More Robots, a guy called Mike Rose, noticed that the vast majority, 85% in fact, of these pre-orders were coming from Argentina, which clearly wasn't where they were really coming from. And weren't being sold at the price they were intended to be sold at to people in the US. Indeed. So the game is roughly about $25, but it was selling for between a buck fifty and $2.50. The price moved around with a very volatile economy there. He saw this as something, you know, awful because he suddenly realised they weren't making 90% of the money from their game. And then it had this weird effect that it turns out Nintendo uniquely charts games by how many copies they're selling and at the same time groups North and South America together. The consequence of this was that they started seeing lots of pre-orders on this game and then he more heavily promoting it to those markets, which included North America. And as a consequence, the game became very prominently featured on the um, online store pages for the Nintendo Switch. What would you need to be able to try to prove the developers are losing or making more money? Would you need them to be sharing sales data, which is unlikely to happen? Yes. Yeah, so um, No More Robots are very unusual in being so public with their sales data, and most places won't do it. The other problem is you face the same issue as you do with piracy, which is there's no way to prove that a pirated copy is a lost sale. So who's to say that these $1.50 purchases of the game are more than they would have made if it weren't available at all. So if developers aren't necessarily losing out because of price tourism, are there still other negative effects caused by price tourism? The lack of reporting on this makes it really hard to give a concrete answer, but developers are potentially losing out given that an, another popular game that's just coming to Switch this month, a game called Sifu, has pulled its Argentinian store completely. I've been unable to get them to explain why, but that store was there and now it's gone. So you can assume that they were feeling negatively impacted. But the larger issue does seem to be that people in those locations see their prices going up and, of course, their wages aren't going up to match. John Walker writes for the video game website Kotaku. John, thank you. Thank you so much. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, actress Andrea Riceborough on her new movie about a single mother who wins the lottery and then quickly loses the money. Boston Book Festival kicks off Friday, October 28th and runs through Saturday. WBUR hosts will be there. Get details at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. The latest AAA Northeast survey shows the statewide average of gasoline is pretty much holding steady. It's $3.60 a gallon. That's just a penny higher than a week ago. 
And in Metro Boston, the average is $3.74. The cheapest gasoline prices in the state are said to be in Bristol County at $3.48 a gallon. In the forecast, clear skies overnight tonight should be beautiful and breezy, down around 43 degrees. Tomorrow, just as sunny as today, a little bit warmer, could reach 62 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston at 549. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We sometimes see lottery winners hoisting a big check on the local news. How does it feel to win such a life-changing sum of money? Oh, well, I feel a lot better yesterday. But we rarely find out what happens to them after that. The new movie, To Leslie, is about a single mom in West Texas years after she buys a lotto ticket worth $190,000. She quickly squanders her winnings and loses family and friends along the way. The film follows her battle with alcoholism, her relationship struggles, and her attempts to redeem herself. The star of To Leslie, Andrea Riseborough, is with us to talk about what it was like to play this role. Andrea, welcome. Oh, hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. This feels like an odd thing to tell you right off the bat, but you play a really excellent drunk, and that is not easy to do in a convincing way. But you capture the range of emotions that Leslie can go through when she's drinking, from angry to, to flirty to despondent to raging. And I wondered what your mindset was during those scenes that allowed you to make them seem so authentic. I think for Leslie, actually, those moments are the ones of escape. It's the sort of waking hours of sobriety when the vast spectrum of guilt and shame, you know, a bunch of horrible, horrible feelings come in, which is kind of what keeps her trapped in this spiral that she's in and so when Leslie sort of gets to that place and leaves her body she's she can be desperately unhappy as well but for the most part it's never satiating drinking she feels before she's about to do it like she's going to soar every time and the disappointment everything comes crashing down she thinks the alcohol will make her soar that will fix everything is that what you mean no I I don't even think she thinks that it's just a hope When you're faced with the reality of your own life and actually the emptiness and the hopelessness is so vast, the idea that something may quell that even momentarily is magical. And there are so many beautiful, funny, spicy parts of Leslie's personality. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That are able to, you know, shine when she's relaxed in that way. And so, in a sense, she, she's become her own demon because she's, you know, she's enmeshed with her own alcoholism. Speaking of the beautiful, funny, spicy parts of Leslie, as you put it so well, we heard that clip of Leslie whooping and hollering and celebrating that she won all the money. 
That's how the movie opens, but soon after, she is literally on a curb thrown out of a motel she'd been living in. So we see her defiant and aggressive and sometimes funny, other times depressed and defeated. You had to play many different versions of Leslie. Did you think of yourself as playing a single character or multiple characters? A single character, of course. I think often in cinema, the breadth of the human experience is so reduced. I think actually humans are extraordinary, all of them. <laughs> and we do very odd things. We're deeply inconsistent. That's perhaps our only consistency. So I very much saw her, see her as, you know, one person. But I think in the life of one person, if you yourself think about Sasha like 10 years before now, it can feel like a completely different person. I'm really, really interested in um, embracing all the different parts of a human being and not reducing that one human being to their addiction, their gender, sexual preferences, whatever it is that is reductive, but rather kind of exploring, I hope, what's a bit more of an accurate depiction of humanity. Let's hear part of a scene involving Leslie and her son James. This is as he's let her live with him for a while with great reservations, and it doesn't go well. Hey! Hey! What did I say? Hey. No drinking! You cannot talk to me mother. this way, James. Mother! Yes, your mama, stop You're a drunk! I am sick. Andrea, some of the reviews of this movie so far have credited it for a really nuanced look at addiction. Did this affect your own understanding of what it's like to be a person with a substance use disorder or a person who's a substance abuser in any way? It's a real leveler, sort of studying human beings. I've said this before in, in relationship to Leslie, but I think there, but for the grace of God, go I sort of mm. thing. Where none of us can choose where we're born in the world geographically or economically or, you know, it's such a roulette wheel. There are those of us who get so horribly forgotten by society. And then there are those of us who have an opportunity like Leslie has Leslie doesn't have the tools to invest money. She doesn't know, she just, there's nobody in, in Leslie's life that may help her make her money work for her, so to speak. It's a huge responsibility. She's also so desperate to be accepted. And you're right, she does have a pretty limited support network to get better, or she's burned that support network. It's been burned, and it also started off with huge generosity because that's how she tries to garner that acceptance is by buying everybody in the bar a drink, you know. And everybody <laughs> in the bar is everyone in her community. Yeah. They've all been generous with her. She's been generous with them. But she's also quite firmly lodged in the position of victim internally. Mark Maron has a cute, charming role in this movie. He plays someone who comes into Leslie's life when she basically has nobody left. And at first he shoes her off shooing away a vagrant, basically. But let's hear part of a scene of what happens next. Did you just offer her a job? I don't know what's wrong with me, man. But look, you better go back out there and tell her no. You go tell her. Damn it, sweetie, where's she gonna sleep? In my room? Where are you gonna sleep? In, in your room? <laughs> Mark is, is thinking, what have I done? In real life, Mark Marin has been very open about his own struggles with alcohol and drug use, so there's a personal layer to this. What was it like working with him on this movie? It was wonderful. We felt like a team, which is as, mu as much as you can hope for 
it's such a strange thing to play two completely different people who are slowly like does bambying toward each other to try and cast <laughs> out intimacy, you know, again, having been kind of bereft and washed up by life. What Mark brings to his character is that little piece of us that even though we know we can't quite do it, wants this time to be able to fix the next partner, you know. Mm. Uh, and he realises that he can't do that with Leslie, but it's actually really beautiful how far they're able to go together as really more than anything, I think, as friends. Yeah, he accepts her with all her flaws. He does, but he also, you know, tells her the truth and sets quite a few needed boundaries. Yeah. He tells That's her to true. stop being a child because it's not helping her and she knows that. And she has a child and her own child is parenting her and she's she's so lost in that dynamic. How wonderful that humans are able to come to a place having felt so isolated and lonely where there's a sort of rebirth and excitement about life again, about the most simple things. I think the most important thing, which is what the film is about, you know, a healthy connection with, with others. Andrea Riseborough stars in To Leslie. It's in theaters and on demand now. Andrea, thank you. Thank you very much, Sasha. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is 90.9 WBUR. After a beautiful day, we should have a clear night tonight, down around 43 degrees for a low. Tomorrow should make it to the low 60s. Sunshine returns for the day tomorrow. And then for the weekend, looks like a mixed bag, at least right now. Sunday, uh, Saturday should be pretty glorious with sunshine. Temperatures around 67, not too breezy. For Sunday, showers could move in. Lots of clouds through the day. Highs about 61 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston at 559. WBUR supporters include the trustees, caring for more than 120 special places across Massachusetts. More about how you can help at thetrustees.org slash Y-O-U. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Prime Minister of the UK has resigned after six weeks in power, a sign of just how shambolic British politics has become. Still ahead on WBUR, what's happened to what used to be a stable, dependable government in Britain? Today is Thursday, October 20th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered.
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, millions of federal student loan borrowers have applied for their debt to be erased under President Biden's new relief plan, but a handful of lawsuits could stop the relief before it starts. And a food distribution company in Philadelphia found itself with too many avocados. This is, you know, over a quarter million avocados, so uh, it's over 100,000 pounds. How Philadelphia handled Avogadon coming up. Wall Street stocks took another dip. We'll have the numbers and the forecast coming up at 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Biden administration says there is, quote, extensive proof that Russia is using Iranian drones in the war in Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. Iran and Russia deny the claims, but State Department spokesperson Ned Price says they're lying. He says the Iranians sent trainers to Crimea, though the Russians have been piloting the drones. Iranian military personnel were on the ground in Crimea and assisted Russia in these operations. Uh, Russia has received dozens of these UAVs so far and will likely continue to receive additional shipments uh, in the future. Asked whether the U.S. is still ready to rejoin a nuclear deal with Iran, Price said that's an academic question at the moment. No deal is imminent, and the U.S. is focused on stopping the drone shipments to Russia and on the protests inside Iran. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Kentucky is the first state to see money from the federal infrastructure law to help clean up abandoned mine land sites and orphaned oil and gas wells. As Stu Johnson with member station WEKU reports, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland made the $74 million announcement. It's been a decades-long process to address thousands of abandoned mine sites across Kentucky. In addition to environmental issues, summertime record flooding only increased safety concerns due to landslides. Secretary Holland says many miners were essential workers during the pandemic, and that commitment is not unnoticed. Part of enhancing our commitment to safe mining operations is recognizing the risks when mines are abandoned. Holland said she toured a completed reclamation project in southern Kentucky. Funding over 15 years is expected to be a major employer of local workers in Appalachia and West Kentucky. For NPR News, I'm Stu Johnson in Lexington. A new report published today by ProPublica and NPR finds U.S. chemical companies continue to use asbestos in chlorine production despite the health risks. Sarah Bowden with member station WESA has more. The chemical industry is adamant that asbestos can be handled safely. But that's not true, according to some workers at Occidental Chemical Corporation's Niagara Falls, New York chlorine plant, which closed last year. Mike Spicone worked at that plant for four decades. And when I see my friends that worked in the plant at a young age getting all these different cancers, I have to wonder, was it because what they were exposed to? The days of asbestos might be numbered. The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed a full ban, which many public health experts say is long overdue. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden. Occidental Chemical says the accounts at Niagara Falls were inaccurate, but wouldn't specifically say what part was incorrect. Stocks fell today. The Dow lost 90 points. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking the state to create more housing outside the city. She says the housing can help people who are still living in the Mass and Cass area of the city who are experiencing homelessness and have substance use disorders. Mayor Wu said today the city has placed 400 people who had been camped out in that area into emergency and permanent housing 
but she says more people from all over New England are arriving and seeking help. The need is there. We know that this works for stabilizing individuals, but at the city level, with the funding that we have, with the resources that we at a, as a municipality have, cannot do it alone. Mayor Wu says the city is also hiring more case managers to address the challenge. A convicted murderer accused of attacking a corrections officer in the state prison in Shirley is now charged with armed assault with intent to murder. Prosecutors say in August, Roy Booth attacked Officer Matt Tidman with a weightlifting bar. The attack left Tidman in a coma for weeks. WBR Simon Rios reports Booth was arraigned today in Woburn. Prosecutors said Booth attacked Tidman in an effort to be transferred back to his home state of Virginia. Outside the court, Kevin Flanagan of the Massachusetts Corrections Officers Federated Union said he's concerned recent reforms are endangering officers. The Commonwealth has gone away from using restrictive housing for the most part, which means the inmates that do commit violations inside the prisons are now um, left in our general population areas uh, for our staff and our officers to deal with. Flanagan said Tidman is making a slow but steady recovery. Booth pleaded not guilty. He was denied bail and is now in a maximum security prison. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The driver found guilty for causing a South Boston crash that killed a two-year-old boy is going to prison for two months. 67-year-old Charlene Casey was sentenced today. She was convicted last week of negligent motor vehicle homicide in connection with the crash in July of 2018. Police say Casey did not yield to traffic as she drove through an intersection that caused the driver of another vehicle to strike the stroller that Colin McGrath was in on the sidewalk. A new study from Tufts University shows the U.S. could save nearly $14 billion in health care costs if the country adopted more programs that deliver meals specifically made for people with diet-sensitive illnesses. Tufts doctoral candidate Kurt Hager worked on the study. He says the programs are linked to a lower rate of hospitalizations. The reductions in healthcare expenditures were so significant that once you paid for the meals, uh, it ultimately re- resulted in, in cost savings, which is extraordinary. This is almost unheard of in healthcare. The medically tailored meals are not covered under Medicare or Medicaid. Most are funded by nonprofits. In the forecast, beautiful night ahead, clear tonight, a crisp breeze down around 43 degrees. Then we should have sunshine tomorrow, topping out in the low 60s. Saturday should be sunny as well, a little bit warmer, up around 67 degrees. Gray skies and rain for Sunday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. The race to replace British Prime Minister Liz Truss has begun. Truss served just 45 days in office before announcing her resignation this morning. That's after lawmakers and her conservative party lost confidence in her. For more on another head-turning day in British politics, we have NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Hi, Frank. Mm, hi, Sasha. Frank, this happened extremely quickly, but it also felt inevitable in recent it days. Did. Why couldn't Liz Truss last? Yeah, well, I think the problem was this. You know, as we've talked before about this, she tried to kickstart the economy here with tax cuts for corporation and the rich, but without actually reducing public spending. And 
This is a time where inflation is about 10% here, rising energy costs. And this spooked the financial markets. It crashed the pound. And she never could really recover. And last night in Parliament, they had a, a, a vote that just became chaotic. It became really clear lawmakers here, they're scared for their jobs in the next election. And they told her, you know, you got to go. And because she has gone, there's now a coming leadership race. What does that look like and how long will it take? Well, the Tories want to do this as fast as possible, Sasha. And the way it's going to work is you got to get the backing of at least 100 Tory lawmakers by Monday afternoon to make the ballot. Now, mathematically, that means only three can make the cut. If it's just two people, that's going to go to the national membership of the party for an online vote uh, by October 28th. And if it's just one person who, who reaches that threshold, they become prime minister. Any big names in British politics running yet? Uh, we're waiting to see. You know, the bookmakers here, they like Rishi Sunak. He's the former chancellor of the Exchequer. He lost trust the last time around. And what's really fascinating about him is he was against this sort of economic policy, these tax cuts. And when the markets rebelled against Truss's plan, she actually had to adopt his plan. Now, there are also some allies of Boris Johnson, the former prime minister. They're talking about bringing him back. But, but Sasha, I think that would create enormous opposition. And Liz Truss is the fourth prime minister to resign since the 2016 Brexit vote. It's as if 10 Downing Street has become a revolving door. Is Brexit to blame for this? Uh, in, the, in the beginning, yes, but it's more complicated. You know, what's interesting about the United Kingdom is it used to be known very much for stable, dependable government, governance. Brexit did really change that. Um, and it highlighted a couple of things. The country was incredibly polarized, and the Tory party itself was so polarized it became almost ungovernable. You might remember Theresa May, the former prime minister, she tried to push Brexit through parliament, but her own right-wing populace in her own party, they fought her on that. She ended up losing her job. Johnson's downfall was different. You know, basically, if you remember last summer, he was forced out for lying about government parties during COVID lockdown. So much turmoil. Beyond politics, is there anything deeper driving this? Yeah, I think there are a few things. Um, there's a tendency of some Tory leaders, particularly Johnson and Truss, to, as analysts here see it, just promise things they can't deliver. I was talking to a guy named Tim Bale. He teaches politics at Queen Mary University of London, and this is what he said. Each of them is essentially telling their party in the country that it can, to use Boris Johnson's phrase, have its cake and eat it too, only to discover, surprise, surprise, when they enter number 10, that it can't. Frank, what does all this turnover say about the state of Britain's political system? Well, I mean, one problem is the party leadership system, how they choose their leaders. What happens here is the Tory membership makes the ultimate decision. Now, they tend to be whiter, older, maybe wealthier, and certainly more conservative than the rest of the British population. They're the same kind of people who look at Johnson, they like his charisma, humor, and cheerleading patriotism. But they also were willing to overlook his personal flaws. And in the case of Truss, you know, they were very happy with the idea of tax cuts. Um, Patrick Dunleavy, he's an emeritus professor of politics at the London School of Economics. And this is how he sees it. The final decisive voice in who gets to be leader are the uh, party members. And they are not very well informed or critical as a, an electorate so that they've chosen badly, really, with Boris Johnson and with Liz Truss. Frank, this is obviously very serious business, but the Brits are known for an absurd sense of political humor. So have, what have they been doing to try to lighten up the mood? Well, uh, you're right. This has been exhausting for people, but there's one tabloid here that's been running a streaming video of a picture of Truss and a head of lettuce asking which would wilt first. And of course, 
as we now know, the lettuce one. <laughs> the lettuce one. That's NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Frank, thank you. Great to talk, Sasha. The financial fate of some 40 million federal student loan borrowers may now be in the hands of the courts. While borrowers have spent the week applying for President Biden's debt cancellation plan, conservative legal groups have been arguing in multiple lawsuits that this relief should be stopped before it starts. For more on these legal fights, we're joined now by NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Hey, Corey. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what would it take exactly for any of these lawsuits to slow down or actually block debt relief here? The most immediate path right now is through what's called a preliminary injunction. So all of these plaintiffs have asked the courts to essentially shut down debt relief immediately, even before a case can get underway. To do that, though, Elsa, they they have to convince a judge of a few things, including, number one, that they are about to suffer irreparable harm from debt cancellation, and two, that stopping debt relief is somehow in the public interest. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's a pretty high bar, but it is also worth remembering that these conservative legal groups have been really thoughtful about filing their lawsuits in places where they are more likely to get a sympathetic, potentially conservative judge. Think Arizona, uh, Texas, and in what experts tell me, maybe the strongest case in Missouri, we're expecting the judge to rule really any day now on whether to grant a preliminary injunction. Well, like more broadly, what are these lawsuits arguing, essentially? Why do they want to stop this debt cancellation? Well, so bird's eye view, they're trying to convince the courts that President Biden's debt relief plan is illegal because Congress, not the president, they say, has the power of the purse. And we know this relief plan has been estimated to cost around some $400 billion. For its part, the Biden administration argues, look, Congress passed a law that specifically gives the Ed Secretary the power to erase student debt in a time of national emergency. All of these lawsuits have just been filed in the past few weeks, right? Like, have any of them made any real progress yet? Well, they are all still uh, in the early stages where Mm -hmm. plaintiffs first basically have to prove they have the right to bring a suit at all. Uh, Going back to what may be the strongest case, the plaintiffs there are actually six conservative states, including Missouri and Arkansas, and they're home to these state-based companies or agencies that they say will absolutely be harmed by debt cancellation. And the argument goes like this, these agencies manage some very old federal student loans. And so these state attorneys general are arguing that canceling these loans would mean less profit for these lenders and so on. So even that though is gonna be tough to prove because on the same day they filed their lawsuit, the Ed Department actually changed the rules of the program to say these old loans don't qualify for cancellation after all. While that reversal infuriated hundreds of thousands of borrowers who still have these old loans, it also appears to have made it harder for the plaintiffs to prove they're going to be harmed. Well, I am curious if the Department of Education is allowed to start canceling debts, do the courts have the power to undo that cancellation in the future? Well, so let's say, Elsa, that a judge refuses to grant an injunction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cancellation proceeds, which we know can start uh, as of this coming Sunday. But one of these cases is allowed to move forward. So then we're likely to see, according to the experts I've talked to, a kind of rapid fire game of legal ping pong, maybe leading to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I have asked a bunch of experts, is it possible the court could make the department uncancel these student loan debts? And Mm -hmm. the answers I got ranged from, 
it's not clear to it's highly unlikely because restoring student loans after they've been erased is kind of like trying to put a sneeze back in your nose. <laughs> that is NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you, Corey. You're welcome, Elsa. Hey, avocado lovers, Fresh Avocados in Philadelphia, a Philly food distribution nonprofit called Sharing Excess, is handing out hundreds of thousands of avocados this week. The event has been dubbed Avogeddon. They see a walking avocado and they know they're in the right place. That's Evan Ellers. He's the founder of Sharing Excess. At one point in the day, he had to start fending off cars as supplies ran low, all while wearing an avocado costume. Sharing Excess typically distributes directly to restaurants and food banks. But this three-day avocado giveaway to the general public became necessary when a massive surplus from South America oversaturated their typical channels. Ellers says they're probably from Peru. But uh, this is you know, over uh, a quarter million avocados. So uh, it's over 100,000 pounds. So it's about 50 to 100 times the size of our regular distributions. Dang, this comes after a shortage in the U.S. of Mexican avocados earlier this year, which is in part why production in Peru has been ramping up. Peruvian avocado shipments to the U.S. have risen by about 30 percent so far during 2022. But Miguel Gomez, a professor of food marketing at Cornell, says this isn't really an issue of surplus. We are not overproducing avocados. It's just a question of the timing. Peruvian export window ends in September. And an avocado from Peru takes between three and four weeks to get into a wholesale market in the U.S., particularly in, in Philadelphia or in California. So retailers have already moved on to selling Mexican avocados, leaving all these Peruvian avocados that have traveled so long to get here without a home. And all that means way too many avocados for sharing excess. So they decided to give them straight to the Philadelphia community because who doesn't need more avocados in their life? Harry DiNapoli certainly does. The fellow in the barbershop where I live in Sartain Street, he told me they were giving them out over here. So let me go, go down and check it out. People carrying crates of about 50 avocados each. And what are they doing with all this green gold? Here's Norhan Ibrahim with Sharing Excess. I use them on scrambled eggs. I use them in pasta sauce. I use them in smoothies. All over the place. So if you are in the area with a craving for those pitted wonders, maybe channel three-year-old Henry in the viral meme and say... This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, at the start of this week, there were two teacher strikes in Massachusetts. Today, there's one. The resolution in Malden and the lack of one in Haverhill coming up. Also, we unpack ballot question three on the November ballot. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston, a bilingual, globally-minded education from preschool to high school. Learn more at gisbos.org. Stocks dipped for a second day today. The Dow lost three-tenths of a percent, 90 points, to finish at 30,334. S&P fell more than three-quarters of a percent to close at 36.66. The Nasdaq lost six-tenths of a percent to end the day at 10,615. Details on this day in business coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. The Boston Internet provider Starry today announced it's laying off half its workforce. The company spokesperson tells the Boston Business Journal 175 workers in Massachusetts are being let go. There's a freeze on hiring and non-essential expenditures. Starry CEO says the company is taking aggressive action while it works on changing its strategy. 
Last week, Starry pulled out of a federal program to subsidize broadband service in rural parts of the country. It's 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. African Community Education hosts the 16th annual ACE Gala at Mechanics Hall, October 22nd. More at worcesterculture.org. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. The Anaheim Ducks will be on the ice at the Garden tonight to meet up with the Bruins, 7 p.m. start time. Clear skies overnight tonight, around 43 for a low. Tomorrow should make it to the low 60s. Sunshine returns. And then for the weekend, Saturday should be pretty gorgeous. Sunshine, temperatures about 67, not too breezy. Sunday showers may move in with clouds pretty much all day long. Highs about 61 degrees. Again, 55 in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, offering programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This week, teachers in two Massachusetts school districts, Malden and Haverhill, went on strike. They argued their schools are not set up to succeed, and they say they're understaffed and undersupported, and that teacher pay is too low. The Malden strike ended just after a day. The Haverhill strike is now in its fourth day. WBR's Max Larkin is here to help us parse out the differences in the labor actions. Max, first, what are the striking teachers' concerns about both pay and working conditions? Yeah, they've argued that educators in their districts haven't been making what they could make in other districts nearby within driving distance. So that's both teachers and paraprofessionals, the support staff that help maybe the youngest kids or kids with disabilities. The union said other districts lured educators away, which resulted in vacancies and overwork for the people who were left. And that's backed up by data, Lisa. Better paying districts have had more success keeping teachers in the past five years, while a place like Haverhill has an average turnover of around 14% each year. Haverhill's average teacher salary is around $75,000, which is $10,000 less than the state average. There, These are the uh, second and third strikes in Massachusetts so far this year. The first was in Brookline. Why strikes in these particular communities? Well, yeah, we should note that teacher strikes are unusual in this state because they're prohibited under state law and they can result in the kind of hefty fines that teachers in Haverhill are now facing. But in terms of why these communities, Malden and Haverhill are both diverse cities with relatively low pay for educators. Peter Piazza is a parent of a kindergartner in Malden and an education researcher. He told, he told me that neither city has a really big diversified tax base to prop up its budget. Take Malden, for instance. It's not Cambridge in terms of the tax base. It's not Everett in terms of having a casino or Somerville. Like our income is residential and that to a great extent is limited by Prop 2.5. Proposition two and a half is, of course, the state law that caps property tax increases. So relatively small tax bases, and both cities have mayors who are worried about fitting everything in their budget. Massachusetts, as you know, passed a law in 2019 to send more state aid to districts, especially those that are under-resourced. And there's been a lot of federal pandemic aid delivered to schools. So how can it be that cities cannot afford to pay more now? Well, I think the issue is that even if they might be able to afford to pay more, it doesn't mean that they necessarily do. In Haverhill, for example, total total spending on schools has gone up this year, 
but only because the state and federal governments are footing more of the bill. The longtime mayor, Jim Fiorentini, decided to cut the city's contribution to schools by over $600,000. That move was controversial. Here's school committee member Richard Rosa in a heated exchange with Mayor Fiorentini at a May budget hearing. What taxpayers hate is when politicians come along, see a pot of money, and think it's a piggy bank. The money is for one purpose, and one purpose only, to benefit the schools and to benefit these students and to close the achievement gap. I think that helps explain why the strike in Haverhill has dragged on. Teachers felt like the state had made this once-in-a-generation investment in their work, only for that windfall to be eaten into by their own local officials. You mentioned uh, that it's not just pay that is driving teacher shortages, though. What are the other factors? Yeah, researchers point to the fact that for a decade and more, interest in teaching as a career has been declining. And they say it's not just about pay, but intangible things like social esteem, respect for the work. Matthew Kraft is a professor of education and economics at Brown University. He says, think about the last two years for educators. They've been on the front lines of the pandemic, and they were also used as what he calls a political punching bag. So pay matters, but teachers are asking for more than that. They're asking for the types of supports that allow them to do their job successfully. Given that, Kraft says raising teaching salaries across the board probably should be on the table now, but he says it's not enough. Just as important is making sure that teachers feel supported and trusted and have the personnel and training and time they need to really do their jobs the best they can. So in summary, Max, what is the latest on the resolution of these labor actions in Malden and Haverhill? Yeah, Malden educators reached a deal with school officials Monday, and the union membership voted to ratify that contract just yesterday. We don't know the specifics yet, but the agreement likely boosts paraprofessional pay by a lot with smaller raises for ordinary teachers. Haverhill educators were supposedly close on a deal last night, but as of this afternoon, they're still in negotiations, apparently stuck not on pay, but on a school safety provision. I've heard from parents who are pulling for a resolution quickly so kids can get back to school ASAP. WBR's Max Larkin, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Massachusetts voters will soon decide whether to allow retailers to sell beer and wine at up to twice as many locations as they can now. It's question three on the November ballot. A yes vote would double the number of beer and wine licenses any business can hold. It would jump from nine to 18. But the proposal reduces the number of licenses a business can have to sell hard liquor. WBR's Vanessa Ochevillo explains. Supporters of question three see the increase in the license cap as a compromise between two opposing interests. On one hand, some large national chains want more licenses. On the other, smaller businesses are concerned too many licenses would make it difficult for them to compete. The Massachusetts Association of Package Stores is leading the Yes campaign on question three. Rob Melian is the group's executive director. If we can get a few years of stabilization as a result of voters voting yes on question three, then it's a win for local businesses. It's a win for the large corporations because they're going to get more licenses. It's a win for the consumer because public safety is part of question three. But opponents like the Retailers Association of Massachusetts say license caps shouldn't exist at all, and licensed businesses should be able to sell any alcohol they want. 
General Counsel Ryan Kearney says his group wants a free market approach. Let the government get out of the way. Let business compete in an open and fair market. And then whoever offers the best product or the best product offering or the best experience, the one that comes out on top. The company Total Wine & More is the biggest backer of the No on 3 campaign. It has spent over $2 million on ads. Total Wine is based in Maryland but has seven locations in Massachusetts. The company says it opposes the reduction in hard liquor licenses because it singles out package stores like them. Question three also would change how the state calculates the penalty a retailer pays when it violates liquor laws, like when it sells to a minor. Right now, the fine is based solely on alcohol sales. But question three would move to include sales from other goods like food and toiletries in the calculation. This would make violations more costly for retailers that sell products other than alcohol. Proponents say this ensures there is an effective deterrent for bigger companies that boast more profits. But opponents call it anti-competitive. Question 3 would also ban alcohol purchases at self-checkout and allow stores to accept out-of-state driver's licenses to check for age. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. Join us tomorrow on All Things Considered as we outline question two on the November ballot. It asks voters whether to make changes to dental insurance regulations. You can find more on all the ballot questions and information on key election deadlines. It's all in our voter guide at WBUR.org. We should have clear skies tonight, a crisp breeze down around 43 degrees, and then two more days of sunshine anyway. Tomorrow, bright skies topping out in the low 60s. Saturday should be sunny as well, a little bit warmer, up around 67. And then gray skies take over for Sunday, maybe some showers as well, topping out at 60. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good.